Please be seated. Okay. Um, Uh, before I begin, I want to acknowledge the debt this lecture owes to an NEH study group on agape and philia in which I participated a couple of years ago. I'm indebted both to the group's discussion and to the lecture that Paul Ludwig gave after leading that group, as I think the participants may recognize. Um, tonight, I'll describe how Dante gave such an exalted role to his love for a woman named Beatrice, aligning his eros with his yearning for the highest things. For him, Beatrice is not an obstacle to love of God, but a sacred figure. For him, Eros is not a competitor, but a partner with Christian love, agape. This word agape is usually translated as charity, and in this lecture, I'll be using the words charity and agape interchangeably. I'll address two worries that one might have about Beatrice. On the one hand, I'll explain why Dante's glorification of his lady is not idolatry, and on the other hand, I'll show why it doesn't imply obscuring God's love with human eros. My lecture will have four parts. I'll begin by articulating the two worries in an introduction. Then in the second part, I'll focus on the relation between eros and agape and on Beatrice's likeness to Christ in Dante's early book, the Vita Nuova. The third part will be on Beatrice at the end of the Purgatorio. The fourth part will look at the fuller picture of eros and agape that we get when Dante is examined on charity in the Paradiso. This final part will also explain the disappearance of Beatrice at the end of the book. Some Christians would take issue with Dante's bringing together Eros and Agape. Famously, a theologian named Andrews Nigren attacked medieval Catholicism and formulated a fundamental separation between Eros and Christian love. His reservation about Eros had to do with its self-interested character. That is, his separation of Eros from Agape is motivated by a desire to separate our self-love from Agape and our human nature from God's nature. According to Nigren's view, the new unique love that Christ taught had nothing to do with any other love that lets human beings ascend to God. It had nothing to do, for example, with Socrates' Eros in the symposium. For Nigren, the uniqueness of Christianity was the insight that we are not justified by the law. We deserve nothing for our own virtue. We are wretched sinners, infinitely distant from God, and no effort of our own can explain God's condescension to us. On our side, there is only selfish eros. Agape is an incomprehensible miracle. This unmotivated condescension is the whole of Christian love for him. Difficulties with his position have been made clear by others. First, its excessive harshness makes election too irrational. It leaves an enormous gap between unmotivated agape and what we clearly and fundamentally are, namely desiring beings seeking happiness. His view also makes it difficult to understand the many passages in the Bible that seem to suggest our involvement in our salvation, like the first one in your handout, uh, as many as received him, he gave them power. Second, and equally importantly, one might add, his doctrine leaves us swallowed up by God. We clearly lose the dignity of our person uh, in this condescension, and we perhaps lose our person simply speaking. Now, I'm going to draw a parallel between this separation of Eros and Agape with something that might seem at first a little distant. 
uh, iconoclasm or the rejection of sacred art as idolatry. Let me first explain what iconoclasm is and then come back to drawing the parallel with Eros and Agape. Fundamentally, there are two reasonable theological concerns behind iconoclasm. First, it implies an intention to protect God from our theoretical misconstruals of his ineffable nature and his unity, and to enhance our inward respect for God by keeping him above anything down here that might represent him. Second, it implies a desire to keep popular religion away from superstition and religious practice. Interest in images is often connected to gullible popular belief in magical powers of even the materials of the image, the wood, the paint, and the stone. So there's something very thoughtful and very pious about iconoclasm, and there are certainly important scriptural authorities in favor of it, above all, the second commandment against graven images. But there is often also a risk of incoherence separating a religion from any particular religious practice or institution. And this is above all true for Christian iconoclasm, which is what I want to focus on this evening. For Christians, there is more latitude with images than in other forms of monotheism. For Christians, there is an image within God himself, since Christ is an image of God the Father. Further, the incarnation or the idea that God became a particular human being in the womb of a particular woman, that he suffered and died and is risen, this history necessarily implies making images of God. The continual retelling of Christ's story in pictures for the illiterate is, was fundamental to the possibility of transmitting the story. But there is, an, there is even more than such necessity to recommend images. The incarnation suggests a terrestrial reality preserved in transcendence. In the incarnation, God became flesh, visible flesh. We can draw pictures of the God who became flesh, even if we can't draw the invisible God. Part of what is at stake in Christian iconoclastic debates is a concern about representing human nature in the image of God. A picture of Christ presents our humanity to us, and it seems to place God's uncircumscribed nature in the visible, circumscribed human image. Some Christians, like John of Damascus, who defended art in the midst of the iconoclastic controversy of the 8th century, saw the image as sacramentally valuable, a low-level emanation from God. He argued that we should revere the image of Christ as Christ himself, because by image, we mean not the physical materials of which an art object is made, but rather the original which the image depicts and participates in. In this case, Christ's humanity, something worthy of the highest kind of worship. In fact, images of Christ were an important element in early Christian debates about Christ's human nature. The very first Christians, uh, for the very first Christians, Christ was only represented symbolically, for example, as a fish or an anchor or a lamb. And he was never represented in sculptures, which was too pagan, but only in paintings. Early Christians had reservations about images of the kind that I've mentioned, although even at that time, objects like the Eucharist and the relic already suggest incarnational alternatives to pagan idols, preparing later defenses of Christian art. I suggest that the initial reservations about images that in the early church might derive from accidental circumstances that make it look like a bad model for the mature faith in a less hostile social context. Some of the reservations were derived from inherited Jewish practices, some from a desire to distinguish Christianity from the pagan practice surrounding them in Rome, and some reservations about the images of Christ derived merely from a need to maintain secrecy so as to avoid persecution. Slightly later, 
when the persecution of Christians was no longer an issue, images of Christ appeared in group scenes telling stories from the New Testament for the illiterate. But images of Christ appearing by himself and not symbolically begin to become common, more common only after paganism vanished in Rome in the middle of the fifth century. These were often produced to affirm the doctrinal importance of the incarnation against other heretical understandings of Christ's nature. At that time, many heresies circulated, such as the claim that Christ's human nature was swallowed up in his divine nature, or the opposed claim that Christ was merely a human instrument of God. It would not make sense to venerate the human image according to any such views. In contrast, the act of veneration of the images of Christ as a man emphasizes that all of his divinity is present along with the visible humanity itself. Such veneration of images is thus a way of affirming both natures. This non-symbolic human image was thought to be so important that the symbolic presentation of Christ as a lamb was expressly forbidden in the 600s, and the representation of Christ as a man became not a possibility but a requirement of the artists. Opposition to the images was never simply about art or even about religious practice. It involved much more fundamental questions about the nature of the divine. Hence, iconoclasm in all of its historical appearances always involved opposition, not merely to pictures, but to the adoration of Mary and the saints in or out of pictures. Just as Byzantine and Protestant iconoclasts were suspicious of images, they were also both suspicious of the adoration of the saints and Mary. In this broader context of communion with Mary and the saints, as we'll see, Beatrice becomes directly relevant. Now I can turn back to the parallel that I wanted to draw with Eros and Agape. We might feel uneasy about an image of Christ's humanity, just as the separators of Eros and Agape wouldn't want to find our self-regard mixed up with Agape. The fear of contaminating Agape with Eros is another form of the fear of contaminating the infinite God with our finite humanity in images we make. The fear that our ascent through Eros diminishes God's condescension in agape is similar to the fear that the work of our hands diminishes the honor we give to Christ. Both fears are understandable, but are generally problematic attempts to eliminate our self-regard in finding our good. Both verge on hatred of our humanity. They both coincide with an idea of the supernatural that wholly effaces our human nature. There is an alternative Christian view that does not eliminate self-regard, but attempts to include it, and that does not simply efface our human nature. I will look at this alternative in Dante. As we'll see, in his view, Eros ascends while Agape descends. Both movements may even be united in the same soul at the same time, and Eros becomes a proportionate reflection of Agape. So I'll try to show how different Dante's literary works are from the more modern view in the way he brings Eros and Agape together. In the context of the idolatry issue, Dante's writing is also provocative. Like the, 17th, sorry, like the 7th century prohibition on the merely symbolic images of Christ, his work brings a new level of realism and historical detail. His inclusion of Virgil and the classical world and his rehabilitation of the city of man suggest a new dignity in our humanity, unthinkable in earlier thinkers like Augustine. In fact, one of Dante's central aims in writing the comedy is to take temporal power away from the church and establish the dignity of the worldly government. 
but this political innovation is merely the flip side of Dante's theological erotic innovation. The great novelty of Dante's political doctrines went hand in hand with the other truly great novelty of Dante's work, which is to take the beloved lady from courtly love poetry and make her a genuine figure of religious awe. His greatest literary works, the Vita Nova and the Comedy, focus on Beatrice, whose beautiful image pointed him towards God during her life and after her death. Remarkably, her earthly reality is always preserved in her transcendence, as it is in the incarnation itself. This paradox distinguishes Dante's ideal woman from merely symbolic or allegorical ideal women. As he himself said, by placing Beatrice in heaven, gazing upon God, he praised her in a way that no poet had ever praised any woman. In fact, no one had ever done it before because it is a very odd thing to do. With what right could he make a beautiful woman a mediatrix to God? Is he worshiping her as an idol? Some have said, yes, she is an idol. In the wake of the Reformation, Protestant iconoclasm, and the index of forbidden books, a Catholic publisher in Italy worried that Dante's love was simply theologically offensive. In 1576, about 250 years after Dante's death, the love theology in the first printed edition of his early book, the Vita Nova, was heavily censored. All Dante's scriptural citations were removed. Passages attributing divine qualities to Beatrice were deleted or cleaned up. For example, where the text said that Beatrice offers him salvation, we find instead sweetness. And where she is said to make man blessed, we find happy. Uh, some chapters were completely cut. The censorship was founded on the separation between Eros and Agape. Although I won't have time to talk much about it in this lecture, this separation seems to underlie the whole history of the ideal woman in Renaissance literature in this period. From Ariosto's Angelica to Cervantes's Dulcinea and later to Milton's Eve. I would be happy to talk about this more in the question period. For these authors, the inclination was to see the beloved as idolatrous. Just as the iconoclast reformers sought to destroy the sacred images, so also poets and novelists attack the chivalric view of love. But they did not limit themselves to the renunciation of erotic idolatry. Uh, they attacked also the chivalric view of arms as well as love. That is, they attacked both the ideal women and the ideals of worldly honor. In opposition on both counts, Dante affirmed both the transcendence of the ideal woman and the integrity of the worldly political order. Unlike Dante's literary realism, the new literary realism that some of these authors pursued and which became the foundation for modern realism was founded on the incompatibility of our terrestrial reality and the manifestation of God. These authors begin from the hiddenness of God and his providence rather than with the incarnation. Hence, the theological issues that are involved in, in tonight's lecture have a relevance that extends to modern literary history as well as political theory. I'll now present Beatrice as an alternative to this. In Dante's day, many contemporary poets were emphasizing a conflict between courtly love and religion. Guitone d'Arezzo renounced courtly love poetry and became a monk, writing religious poems against the courtly tradition. He stressed the moral opposition between divine love and the poet's human lust. Two other less ascetic and less pious poets who were extremely close to Dante 
Guido Cavalcanti and Guido Guinizelli expressed similar concerns. Cavalcanti worried about the excessive focus on one's own and on the private possession of the beloved, which were obstacles to the universality of philosophical truth and are good according to reason. He thought that being overwhelmed by the passion of love divides the soul and implies forgetting what reason aims at. Guido Guinizelli's poetry focused on the praise of the beloved, but he suggested that the earthly lady who was the object of love and praise, if more than metaphorically divine, was in a dangerous, sinful competition with God. He saw that the implicit religious elements in the courtly love tradition were clearly idolatrous, but he never sought a re resolution to the problem. In the story of Paolo and Francesca in the Inferno, Dante dramatizes Guinizelli's problem. But long before that, the young Dante already writes a book addressing all these objections called the Vita Nuova, or New Life. The Beatrice of the comedy originates in the erotic experience that this book describes, so we will have to know something about it. As I will suggest, the comedy is a more thoughtful and more articulate return to the ideals of the Vita Nuova. This early book describes his love of Beatrice during her life in Florence. It recounts the development of his po love poetry for her and tells the effect of Beatrice's death on him and his poetry. His love in this book is unusual. It is not at all libidinal love. Beatrice's beauty is inseparably bound up with her moral virtue and beyond any lust that might make Dante forget about his highest aims. Uh, this is in your handout, second one. Uh, as Dante puts it, her image gave boldness to love to rule over me, but was of such noble virtue that love was never without the faithful counsel of reason. So he's never blinded or even distracted by physical passion and presumably never ceases thinking about God while looking on her. Dante's experience of Eros begins from the already religiously infused courtly love tradition. It is this tradition that explains the simultaneous interest that Dante has in Beatrice as a woman and the non-libidinal character of that interest. From the beginning, Beatrice is part of the courtly model. She is his domina, his lady, in the sense where lady is the feminine of lord. But Dante takes that religious element in the courtly tradition and radicalizes it in a most daring way. Beatrice is introduced as the glorious lady of my mind and a young angel. His meeting with Beatrice is nothing less than the experience of God's grace. The title of the book, New Life, recalls Paul's phrase about giving up the old life of sin and entering into the new life of grace. Her beauty is rooted in the Trinity. The Vita Nova is frequently compared to contemporary accounts of saints' lives. That is the genre to which it belongs. Beatrice, Dante says, is a miracle. Her appearance on earth is a unique event that he witnessed and now records in his book for those who never saw her. His love mixes erotic love with charity. In one passage, he describes the effect of Beatrice's greeting on him in the street. Nearly the whole of the experience of love in the Vita Nuova is condensed in this passage. In this greeting, she presumably said in Italian, salve, which means literally, save you, and here is short for, may God save you. It is a blessing, it makes blessed. And as Dante points out a couple of times in the book, this is what Beatrice's name means. And it, that is, in Italian, her name means she who makes blessed. One further linguistic point. In Italian, the word for greeting, salute, 
also means salvation. Here is Dante's description of this greeting or blessing. And this is in your handout, number three. Uh, Whenever she appeared, through the hope her miraculous greeting, I had no enemy in the world. Instead, a flame of charity came to me that made me pardon whoever had offended me. If anyone had asked me anything, my answer would be only love with a face dressed in humility. And whenever she was about to greet me, a spirit of love drove out the feeble spirits of vision, telling them, go and honor your lady, and it remained in their place. And anyone who wanted to know love could have done so by looking at the trembling of my eyes. My body, which was wholly under love's control, moved like an inanimate mass. In her greeting dwelt my beatitude, which greatly exceeded and surpassed my capacities. Her beauty promises beatitude for him in her miraculous greeting. But the charity he feels is not for her, but for anyone. This is mysterious. The key to the passage is understanding the role of hope. The promise of the beautiful creates a hope that is so strong it generates charity. To understand it, we have to think of this greeting in which the beautiful woman said, be saved, as so overwhelmingly pleasant that he forgets himself. The hope that the beauty arouses in him overwhelms him. The confidence of this hope creates a generosity in him. Often, we can only grant things to others if we feel that we have it to spare ourselves. Hence, when his hope is so great, he can afford to become all charity and humility. He runs no risk of loss in his charity. It is in harmony with his selfishness. We might also make this point theologically rather than psychologically by recalling what is said in the Purgatorio, namely that love is a good that one has more of when one shares it. Dante wishes to give to others while also getting for himself. Both occur when he is taken over by love, even at the level of his eyes and his body. It makes his body and his libido wholly inactive with all his activity focused in the eyes. Note that he becomes charitable for others in a way that reflects her charity for him in blessing him. She does not feel erotically towards him, but charitably. He instead erotically and selfishly desires her greeting while loving others charitably. The charity and the eros operate together in him without conflict, but have different objects. Eros is for something that he yearns after that is above him. Charity is an effect of his hope for that same object, but it is aimed at people at his level or below for anyone that he would bump into at that moment. This is an incomplete description of Dante's account of Eros and Agape. So far, we merely have the two loves in the same soul provoked by one object, but aimed at different people. We'll complete the articulation of this later when we come to Dante's definition of Agape in the Paradiso. As Dante will many times suggest, and as the censors will later notice, Beatrice is like Christ, or like love. She makes others who see her like herself, just as in greeting Dante, she transforms him into love himself. Beatrice has this effect on all who are noble enough to see her. This is perhaps the most unusual thing about his love for Beatrice. It is shared public erotic love, not private love. She is the beloved for all Florentine gentlemen. Dante's act of charity lies in his sharing of Beatrice through his poetry with non-Florentines and non-contemporaries who never saw her when she was alive. 
Dante's great discovery in the middle of the Vita Nuova, which he learns from Guido Guinizelli, is that he must praise Beatrice, not merely describe her effect on him. His poetry must be about her, not about himself. His blessedness is no longer in her greeting, as it was in the passage I just read, but his salvation is now in his own charitable poetry in praise of his lady. This new direction generates the greatest poems in the Vita Nuova. And yet, it is worth noting that Dante himself saw this apparently self-effacing attitude of praise as selfish in a positive sense. Dante says elsewhere that praising someone who is far greater than you is always self-interested, since praise implies friendship, and friendship implies likeness. Hence, to praise the great is to assert that you are like the great in some way. The same goes, presumably, for friendship with God. After Beatrice dies, years pass, and he begins to forget Beatrice for a new noble woman whom he elsewhere identifies as a symbol for philosophy. At the end of the Vita Nuova, he repents his philosophical betrayal of Beatrice and turns again to her memory. He rises up to God where Beatrice dwells. As we'll see later, the sequence in the final paragraphs of the Vita Nuova of repenting his forgiveness for Beatrice, sorry, as repenting his forgetting of Beatrice, followed by assent to God. This is an early draft to be rewritten and expanded in the comedy. At the end of the Vita Nuova, Beatrice is described as the object of his soul's pilgrimage, like the shroud on which Christ left his features, which pilgrims visit in Rome, known as the Veronica, or true icon. Dante suggests that the pilgrimage to Rome and his local pilgrimage to Beatrice are ultimately the same. The famous shroud in Rome has power, but actually the local miracle of Beatrice, a woman who is a mirror of God for the Florentines, is just as good as the shroud. Christ comes to life for Dante in Beatrice. Her image transports him to the good that can fulfill him. As a creature gone to her creator, her beauty is an exemplar that is more perfect in God, just as the features in the shroud are more perfect in the seemingly absent original face that they let us see. But further, Dante's poetry about her has the power to make others feel Beatrice's beauty without ever seeing her. His words are as good as sacred relics like the shroud with Christ's features. His poem, like Beatrice, is a mediator to God, not a competitor. At the same time, his writings about her are in fact even better than the historical Beatrice herself, and better than the famous shroud, in that the writings can be shared with all who read them anywhere and forever. The Vita Nova closes with a final vision that makes him decide to write no more until he can complete another, much greater work in which he will describe Beatrice before God in heaven. That other greater work he refers to is the comedy, an account of the vision that he has at the end here. In the comedy, Dante will give an account of how all human life should be understood in the light of eternal reality and revelation. How could so much come out of a vision of Beatrice? Dante distinguishes what he is doing from idolatry on a few occasions. I'll just mention one of these. In Canto 19 of Purgatory, Dante has a dream of the siren, who Virgil will later tell him is the symbol for excessive desire for earthly pleasures. Uh, I'll read the passage. It's on your handout, number four. Um, in the hour when geomancers see their fortuna maior rise in the east, a stuttering woman came to me in a dream, cross-eyed and crooked on her feet, with her hands deformed 
and pallid in color. I gazed at her, and as the sun comforts the cold members that the night weighs down, so my glance made her tongue ready and quickly straightened her, and the distorted face colored as love would want it. Then, with her speaking unshackled, she began to sing so that with difficulty might I turn my attention away from her. I am, she sang, I am the sweet siren that misleads sailors in the middle of the sea, so pleasant is it, it is to hear me. I turned Ulysses, eager for his road, to my song, and whoever gets used to staying with me rarely departs, so completely do I fulfill him. The time is indicated by a reference to a Gnostic astrological tradition called geomancy. This practice involved connecting patterns drawn on the earth to constellations in the heaven. So the setting suggests a kind of superstitious mistaking of earthly and heavenly. At first, the siren is ugly and stuttering, but then Dante's gaze makes her articulate and beautiful. As others have suggested, his gaze's power to reshape her is an allegory for the power of his imagination to reshape the earthly and make it heavenly. That is, an allegory for the act of idol-making. The reference to Ulysses suggests that this woman is an image not only for ordinary lust, gluttony, and greed, which are the things punished on the terraces she represents in purgatory, but for the lust of the eyes uh, related to higher earthly pleasures like philosophy. Dante recovers from this siren with the help of an unnamed woman who prompts Virgil to strip the siren, exposing the stench of her mortal nature. Later in the same canto, we encounter a real historical example of the danger of the damage that the allegorical siren can do. Dante meets a pope, Adrian V, who is purging his sins. He tells Dante that he had first made an idol of political power that he could get from church offices, and then, when he rose to its peak and became pope, finally came to recognize that no earthly position, no ambition would satisfy him. Adrian then decided to quit, and he is saved for renouncing his ambition for church offices, although he must spend time in purgatory weeping over his attachment to the earth. He suffers his longing for heaven with his face and body literally pressed into the dirt of the earth. I'll return to the image of this pope and to the siren at the end of this lecture. Strangely enough, although Dante clearly has an interest in terrestrial beauty, Adrian's tears for heaven and his hatred for earth are Dante's emblem of how we should live. And Beatrice will tell us more about how to distinguish Dante's love of the siren from his love of her. But as I'll now show, although in moments like this, Dante reflects on the dangers of idolatry, rather than backing away from the Vita Nuova, he explicitly reaffirms it in the Purgatorio. When Dante arrives at the Garden of Eden in Purgatorio 28, he witnesses a strange spectacle. He watches as a variety of mystical symbols parade before his eyes, candlesticks, animals, nymphs, and so on, uh, the Spirit of God leads a procession in the form of seven candlesticks, the seven gifts of the Spirit that illuminate human life. Following the seven gifts of the Spirit are the books of the Old Testament, represented by 24 elders. Then comes a chariot, which stands for the church, pulled by Christ as a mythical animal, the griffin, half lion and half eagle. On either side of the chariot are virtues, represented by nymphs, and behind the chariot there are various men, representing the books of the New Testament, Paul, James, and so on. More concisely, then, the procession means that the Spirit of God illuminates revelation and the history of Scripture, which centers on the transcendent moment of Christ's coming to earth and leading his church, uniting the books and the epochs before and after him. The whole procession is in the form of a cross with the two-natured symbol of Christ at the center. 
This elaborate procession contains a set of images, mostly from the book of Revelation, which refers the whole scene to the Last Judgment. So Dante is witnessing a personal Last Judgment. Even fairly uneducated medieval readers would be immediately aware of this, even though we might have to find the information in our footnotes. The thing that makes Dante's procession different from the ordinary medieval understanding of the Last Judgment is that is the person who will appear in the chariot when the procession stops. There is quite a grand preparation for the arrival of this great personage. When the procession stops, one of the representatives of the Old Testament sings the phrase, Come, Bride of Lebanon, from the Song of Songs three times. Then everyone in the procession sings in response, Blessed is he who comes. Now, in its original context, this phrase, Blessed is he who comes, describes Christ entering Jerusalem. The Old Testament erotic longing for the Bride of Lebanon is now to be satisfied with the phrase announcing Christ from the New Testament. If we know this verse, and if we know the iconography of the procession, then it is very clear that these angels are welcoming the returning Christ who is arriving in his judgment seat so as to decide who can be received into the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. So all this should just be said to welcome the griffin. But the setup is strange. The griffin is already there. Who could they be calling? We may not be attuned enough to these images to feel the force of it, but if we attune ourselves, as I am trying to do here, then nothing can prepare us for what happens next. The angels quote a verse from Virgil's Aeneid, Manibus odate lilia plenis, give hands full of lilies. This phrase was used in the underworld by Anchises, who, after parading the greatest of future Romans before Aeneas, presents Marcellus, a promising nephew of Augustus who died young. Anchises says, in the most melancholy moment of the poem, even though it is of no use, let me throw these lilies over the shade of the dead soul. All this is overturned in purgatory when the angels shower the chariot with lilies, and in the midst of a delicate rain of flowers, Beatrice appears. The he in blessed is he who comes, it turns out, is a she. Now, a line from Virgil as part of the Last Judgment is already stretching the bounds of propriety and including the pagan world in a new way. It allows our worldly dignity and our merely natural desires to be completed rather than effaced in the moment of revelation. But this is not what I find the most striking. Let's assume that we're at home with the idea that the ancient ability to re inability to redeem death has been overcome by Christ's sacrifice and that it is natural for Dante to use pagan poetry to express this thought and heighten the contrast. Virgil's melancholy has itself been uplifted and transformed into a moment of grace. But Virgil's conversation with Statius in an earlier canto might have already prepared us for that. Rather, it is Beatrice that makes this passage so complicated. Now, as I said, the procession suggests that the figure who emerges should be Christ coming down to the judgment seat. Dante has pulled out all the stops to make us think this. And of course, only Christ's grace could surpass the ancient melancholy and redeem us from death. But as Charles Singleton said, we witness here the advent of Beatrice. In Dante's case, the person who pronounces the decision about whether he is received in the heavenly city is Beatrice. She is the one who is the center of the heavenly procession. She is the representative of the judge in the last judgment. She will make Dante confess his sin and be an instrument of his forgiveness. She appears to him in Christ's place. The griffin that pulls the chariot is a symbolic presentation of Christ that humbly leaves Christ a mystery. 
So the use of the griffin is a careful, humble avoidance of idolatry here. But unfortunately, Dante doesn't leave it at that, but looks at the griffin in Beatrice's eyes. Again, Christ appears to Dante and comes to life for Dante in the beautiful eyes of Beatrice. The two natures of the griffin are mysteriously fused, but in Beatrice's eyes, he sees alternately one or the other. He says, think, reader, this is not on your hand, think, reader, if I marveled when I saw that the thing in itself remained unchanged, but in its image changed. In the human soul of Beatrice, Dante can see either the humanity or the divinity of Christ, never both at once. Why does Dante see the griffin through the eyes of a woman at all? We might try to evade the problem and make Beatrice herself a symbol, but it just won't work with her because she was Dante's contemporary. We should say that even when dead, her eyes have the flash that distinguishes living conscious human beings from dead ones and statues. She is not just a beautiful object, rather she is the subject who loves the beautiful itself, just as Dante does. He falls in love with God through his beloved who is herself in love with God. In fact, he falls in love with her insofar as she is a lover. The reflection of Christ in her loving eyes makes others like Dante into lovers of Christ. Her role as a lover makes his love of her not idolatry. To understand why the mirroring of Christ in her eyes is not idolatrous, we must also recall the tradition of the mirror of God. To see God in a mirror is not idolatrous. Rather, it is to see God in an imperfect and limited way, not as he is. Beatrice's vacillation between the two natures of Christ emphasizes her limited ability to reflect him. It is what we can do on earth, as Paul puts it, to see through a glass darkly. This idea was deployed in a number of debates. This term, mirror of God, was sometimes applied to martyrs and saints. St. Francis, for example, visibly reflected Christ in the stigmata and mirrored his suffering in the sorrow within his soul as well. Beatrice's soul is in the same category with such saints. Her beauty, but also her charity and her humility, reflects God's, although she cannot perfectly express the paradox of the two natures. More generally, any reformed soul is a mirror for God, just as any human being is made in God's image. As the opening lines of the Paradiso will put it, all the universe reflects God's life. I would underline also that the idea of seeing God through a mirror was part of the defense of art in the early iconoclastic debates. As I said earlier, in those debates, positions against images usually implied equal opposition to the adoration of saints and martyrs and a slighting of the Virgin Mary. The idea of the mirror of God was used to defend images and would supply a traditional account that explains Beatrice the saint as well as her beauty that points to its pre-existence in God. Uh, one must also point out that whatever limited reflection Beatrice provides, it is great enough that Dante cannot end this canto with a description of her unveiled reflection of God, but with the claim that she is undescribable. Beatrice is both a defense of images and a limit to images. Despite his reticence at the peak of his vision, the eternal meaning reflected in the eyes of a contemporary human being is distinctive of his idea of Beatrice. And something similar to his treatment of Beatrice can be understood to explain the style of the book as a whole. It is the source of Dante's literary realism. It defines his attention to all the characters in the book, good and evil. Their eternal meaning is presented through attention to personal and historical details, most especially but not exclusively in his contemporaries, who make up the majority of the people he meets. 
rather than present us with the definition of the sin or the virtue for each group of souls, as a sterile encyclopedia might do, he presents the story of the soul in its place. These stories are full of ambiguities, but they are fruitful ambiguities. The stories suggest that readers take what is valid in ordinary experience and purify it, rather than simplifying it or discarding it. We start from where we are and work our way upwards, as Aristotle does in dialectically arguing his points from experience and common opinions. Uh, now I'll turn to Paradiso in this last section. Um, um, I'm going to now talk about the limits that Dante sets to the vision of God that he can have through Beatrice and in his poem. The Paradiso opens with a disclaimer about what he can do as a poet. We are told that he can't express or even recall much of what he saw in heaven. He puts us on notice that he must end his journey with a concession to some of the iconoclast's demands. Beatrice can only reflect Christ and lead him towards a complete vision of Christ. She is ultimately a salutary reminder of the incarnate God. But only Christ is fully God and fully man. Likewise, Dante's poem cannot fully mirror the incarnation that Christ is. The sober distance from God in the Paradiso is its prophetic character. By prophetic, I mean looking forward to the fulfillment of justice and living in anticipation of a contact with God who is not fully present on earth, living in exile. In order to take on the role of the prophet, Dante must put on a severity that sits very oddly with love poetry. The prophet has to live in the desert with nothing more than hope. As in the Old Testament, prophecy and the gentleness of the feminine would not seem to coincide. And yet it is Beatrice who is herself the source of Dante's prophecies. The first prophecy is at the end of the Purgatorio where Beatrice gives a chilling condemnation of the corruption of the church in her times. We hear many prophecies of hers, similar prophecies, throughout the Paradiso. Such moments suggest that the greatest task of Beatrice is not to be an emblem of beauty as we usually want to think of her. Rather, above all, she is a figure of anger. She is loved in and for her anger, and her anger is a sign of her love. She is both the church triumphant and the church militant at the same time. The Paradiso emphasizes the prophetic vein more than the other books and presents us with a number of very austere figures as role models for human life. So, for example, peaks of human virtue in Paradiso are monastics, like St. Francis with his erotic love of poet poverty that is itself a form of vision. Others are contemplatives like Peter Damien and St. Benedict and the white-haired mystic St. Bernard. The other non-monastic figures in the, of greatest importance in Paradiso are soldiers or kings who sacrifice themselves for heavenly justice. It may be easy to miss it while reading the Paradiso, but the, greatest, the two greatest values of heaven are poverty and spiritual war. Despite our rise to the more ethereal reaches of heaven, the church militant and the need to express hostility to the earth get ever greater emphasis. The contemplatives at the very top of Dante's celestial hierarchy are defined as those who love and minister to their fellow men and at the same time, those who least esteem the earth. From their height, they can look down on it as Benedict did from the dizzying heights of his mountaintop monastery in Monte Cassino near Rome. So the content of the Paradiso might not seem to sit so well with the choice of the beautiful woman as a guide. But mysteriously, Dante sees the erotic attraction to God in Beatrice's eyes as implying a severe and unbending focus on what is ugly and bad in the world and in need of correction. As Dante's vision becomes clearer, 
he and Beatrice will be farther and farther from the world and more and more angry about its corruption. Why should erotic desire have anything to do with such austerity and anger? And isn't anger thumos, not eros? The answers to these questions lie in thinking of Dante's life on earth after Beatrice has died. Back in purgatory, Beatrice speaks with Dante about how he went wrong after her death, so wrong that she has needed to send him Virgil and to have to come herself so as to save his soul. His mistake, she suggests, was indeed idolatry, but it was not idolatry of Beatrice. In fact, he didn't regard her highly enough. She said, and this is uh, number five on your handout, that you be stronger next time when you hear the sirens. Listen, you will hear how my buried flesh should have moved you in a contrary direction. Never did nature or art present to you so great pleasure as the beautiful members in which I was enclosed, and they are scattered in the earth. And if the highest pleasure so failed you in my death, what mortal thing should have drawn you in its desire? In her life, Beatrice's beauty was higher than any natural or artistic beauty. After her death, her immortal element should now have been only more powerful, more free, and should have pulled Dante beyond the world. Back in the Vita Nuova, when Beatrice first died, Dante reacted the way he should. He began to despise the earthly life because it had lost its salute, its salvation. Beatrice from heaven offered him consolation. But a year or so after she died, as Beatrice also tells us here in this passage, Dante turned to the sirens. Now the siren I mentioned earlier is a figure for idolatry. It is taking an earthly good and making it into a heavenly one through a distortion of the imagination. The siren for Dante was philosophy. Philosophy is a genuine good. It's a worldly good and even the greatest worldly good. But to treat philosophy as a heavenly good when it's merely an earthly good, to treat it as higher than Beatrice, the heavenly individual who looks on God, that was Dante's mistake. He takes consolation in philosophy as if it could surpass his communion with God through Beatrice. And that consolation blinds him to the higher realm, calming his desires, creating indifference, and cutting him off from what he should actively long for. Recall the image of Pope Adrian V with his face in the dirt, crying with longing for what is beyond the earth. Dante, like Adrian V, should have recognized all earthly things as lesser pleasures than what Beatrice's grace was for him. He should have risen up to heaven in pursuit of her now that she had become an eternal heavenly creature more beautiful than before. Like Adrian V, Dante must yearn after what has left him in permanent mourning. Unworldliness is the proper way of seeking consolation in the more distant but truly higher good, rather than finding substitutes in the sirens of the here and now. Anger at the corruption of the earth, and even indignant disgust with the earth, is then a way of maintaining eros for what is now absent. Adrian's face is pressed into the dirt, not as punishment, but as therapy. Anger and disgust imply a love of what earthly things cannot point him towards. While before, Beatrice was an earthly beauty pointing before the earth, now Beatrice is a creature that has reached her creator. Although she's left Dante in mourning, she's now a more even, now even a more adequate mediatrix for him uh, and is not renouncing what she once did as the earthly miracle she greeted, that greeted him. Rather, now she is completing that work. 
I'll close now with a look at how in Dante's meeting with John the Evangelist, Dante presents the paradox of a private love for something public and universal. In his meeting with John in Paradiso 26, he's examined on the meaning of agape or charity. When Dante first sees John, he attempts to see his body within the flame of his spirit. Now in general, the spirits in heaven are supposed to not have their bodies until the last judgment. Only Christ and Mary are exceptions. So why does Dante look for John's body? Because a myth arose that John never died and went to heaven in body. The myth came from the gospel's description of John as the most beloved of the apostles. Christ loved all mankind universally, but as a particular human being, he had a special private love for certain people, such as his mother and his close friend John. The story of John's mysterious elevation is supported by the ambiguous question of Christ at the end of the fourth gospel. What is it to you if I want that John waits for me? When Dante attempts to see John's body, he suddenly goes blind. John questions the blind Dante about love, asking him why he loves. Dante replies that he loves because of the authority of scripture and because of philosophical arguments. But the apostle seems to ask him the same question again. Are there other cords that pull you to God or teeth of love that bite you? And Dante replies, and this is number six on your handout, all those bites that can make the heart turn to God are in concord in my love. That the being of the world and my being, the death that he underwent so that I might live, and that which every faithful person hopes as I, all this has drawn me from the sea of perverse love and put me on the shore of right love. The leaves with which are leafed all the garden of the eternal gardener I love as much as the good given to them by him. Immediately after this answer, Dante regains his sight, now made even stronger. So whatever he said must have resolved his difficulty with private and universal love. What is the insight in this passage? Dante has brought the love of God to his own individual level. He is moved by God's gift of creation as a whole and God's gift of salvation, forgiveness, and the hope that these imply for him. He is concerned with his own life and his whole unique story in the comedy, as this passage suggests, by returning to his beginning with the shipwreck from the sea of wrong love in the first canto of the Inferno and following him to the shore of right love in purgatory. In speaking of the leaves, he is thinking of John's passage in chapter 15 of his gospel on the eternal vine. This is number seven in your handout. Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. As part of the vine, he is now able to love the garden of the whole creation and all the leaves, that is all creatures who are gifted with the good from God. The gift of the good that the blessed have from God is agape. Dante's self-interested love is proportionate to the agape that comes down to all the leaves. None of this makes human merit obscure the awesome greatness of God, as Nigrin might fear. Dante's love for himself has now somehow cast a wider love around all creatures and all the Christians given God's grace. He loves all the blessed that he will later meet in the celestial rose and all those who are yet to come there. The two commands, to love God and one another, are now one act which spring out of what was initially self-love. As Dante says in the Convivio, 
last thing you're handing out. Self-love is the root of all other loves, as everyone knows. How could the universality of such a love have any room for the privacy of erotic love of Beatrice? Note how very similar this passage is to Dante's description of the effect of Beatrice's greeting on him in the Vita Nuova. In both cases, universal charity comes from hope. Dante is exhilarated by God's creation and God's sacrifice that promises him so much, and this confident private hope for his own happiness becomes charity for all God's garden. When he feels more secure, he can give more of himself. Likewise with the beauty of Beatrice. His self-regarding hope for her greeting brought the flame of charity to him, and he became love. He was humbled by her beauty. His self was effaced by it, even if at the same time, on another level, the self was actively at work. In this humility before the good, the human soul exceeds what's merely private. Dante turns to find Beatrice in Canto 31 and is surprised to see her replaced by a final guide, a white-haired old man, St. Bernard. The anti-sensual element is emphatic, for St. Bernard may be beautiful, but he is not pretty. And yet, Dante emphasizes the continuity we must recognize between his guides. Given what we understand about the prophetic character of Beatrice, we should not be surprised by the austerity of Bernard. Dante will compare his vision of the old monk to the Veronica, the same shroud with Christ's features that he once compared to Beatrice at the end of the Vita Nuova. Dante then gives thanks to Beatrice for her help. In his final speech to her, she has fully transcended herself. She has become a universal figure for the blessed. Bernard asks Mary to help Dante see God. He tells her that all the saved of all history up to that day, including Beatrice, now pray for Dante. This is universal agape, like Dante's loving all the leaves in the garden, only here it is made explicit that it works in reverse as well. In this moment of communion, which seamlessly combines agape and eros, not only does he love the whole garden, but the whole garden loves him in return. All is for each, and each is for all. Mary, the more traditional universal symbol of love, is not a competitor with Beatrice, the mirror of God, but is now revealed as the completion of Beatrice and is the more perfect mirror. Mary started Beatrice's rescue of Dante in Inferno, and now she finishes her task and turns Dante to the original for which she is merely the image. Thank you.